Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. Hey everyone, if you like this podcast, go behind the paywall to get privileged access to the smartest minds in finance. Join the Real Vision community and learn how to become a better investor. Visit realvision.com slash rvpod and use the promo code podcast10, that's podcast10, to get 10% off our essential membership for the first year. Now, to the top analysis of today's crypto markets. What does the Silvergate fallout mean for the crypto industry, particularly as Silvergate announces the shuttering of the SEN, that's the Silvergate Exchange Network, and could Kraken soon attempt to fill the void? Plus, why Binance reportedly tried to hire Gary Gensler and new allegations that are arising about Tether. Welcome to Real Vision Crypto Daily Briefing. I'm Ash Bennington. Lots happening this morning, obviously. I'm joined by Seth Gins from CoinVent. Welcome to the show, Seth. Thanks for having me, Ash. Plenty to discuss here today, but first, let's take a look at the latest price analysis. Crypto markets are relatively stable today. The total crypto market cap is down just slightly today on coin market cap. Bitcoin is trading marginally higher on a 24-hour basis. It remains down more than 4% on a trailing seven-day basis. The current price of one Bitcoin is $22,500 US dollars. According to data on leverage levels from Glassnode highlighted by Coindesk, Funding rates in the Bitcoin perpetual futures market have turned negative. This is a bearish sign because it means short traders are dominant and willing to pay bullish long traders. Going back to the spot markets, ETH is trading virtually the same as Bitcoin on a percentage-wise basis. One ETH is changing hands for around $1,575. US Meanwhile, BUSD, the Binance-branded stablecoin issued by Paxos, is on the cusp of falling out of the top 10 biggest cryptocurrencies. BSD's circulating supply has gone down below $10 billion for the first time since June of 2021. Coindesk cites blockchain data by crypto intelligence firm Nansen, which shows that investors have redeemed nearly $7 billion of BUSD since February 13 of 2023, when Paxos announced it would no longer issue new BUSD. Okay, viewers, join us in the conversation. Put down your questions in the chat wherever you're watching. We'll ask the best ones on air later in the show. Remember, Real Vision members take priority, but the good news is membership is free for Real Vision Crypto. Uh, Seth Gins is a managing partner and head of liquid investment at CoinFund, a digital asset investment company. Seth, let's start out here with the big picture. What are your thoughts on this market? So our, our view right now in the market is um, we are in a bottoming process. We're starting to, to break out from that bottoming process. Um, we made a call in the summer of last year that there were three factors coming into play around a bottoming process. Macro was um, on the cusp of shifting from more of a headwind to, to neutral, that we had had a lot of the shoes to drop or all of the shoes to drop from a crypto-specific perspective. We were a little wrong on that. FTX was yet to come. Um, right. And then really interestingly, from a bottom-up perspective, that 
fundamentals mattered again. Good news was good news. And price was reflecting um, the realization of fundamental catalysts. So if we fast forward to today, um, we, we now think we are past the worst of um, the, uh, the crypto-specific top-down headlines. From a macro perspective, it very much looks like that shift from a headwind to neutral um, from a macro perspective um, it is very much the case. We were talking about this a little offline, but seeing a big increase in uh, the 10-year yield um, uh, over the last month, and the equity market hasn't really responded to that. It's been flat with a 50 basis point increase in the 10-year yield. That's hey, a Steph, let me regime. jump in here for a second, yeah. uh, because I know there are a lot of folks out there who don't have backgrounds in traditional finance. Let's talk about what this all means, the significance of the 10-year yield, where we are from a macro perspective. Uh, we were talking a little bit offline about the 2-10 spread. Uh, let's break this down for folks who don't have traditional finance backgrounds. Yeah. So generally speaking, uh, you, you have different regimes in markets. So I, I'm going to take this back to a high level. And the regime for the last decade was one where um, when people go risk on, when investors go risk on and want to deploy capital um, in riskier assets, you saw two things happen together. You saw the 10-year yield go up, which means that they're selling treasuries, um, and you saw the dollar fall. Um, and, and those are interrelated, right? Because the, the inverse of that is when there's fear globally, people go to the safest currency, the dollar, and they buy treasuries as a safe haven, and you see the 10-year yield come down. Um, so historically, the dollar falling and the 10-year yield going up was a risk on, and by historically, I mean for the last decade, a risk on combination. Last year was a different regime. And what was different about last year was part of the reason why the 10-year yield was going up was a recalibration around inflation expectations and around the view that the Fed was going to continue to fight inflation, regardless of what was happening um, with the economy. So again, normally, if it looked like the economy was slowing, you get a bid on the 10-year and the yield comes down. But this fear that the Fed was behind the curve on inflation and had to keep raising rates meant that even if there was fear around the economy, the 10-year yield kept going up. So what we think has happened here, and the reason why we've gone to more of a uh, neutral rather than macro headwind, is the fact that we think we're back in that regime from the last decade, where um, the fact that the 10-year yield is going up is actually not a, um, a headwind for the equities market. And again, not talking about what we think is going to happen, but just what's happened over the last month where you've had a big increase in the 10-year yield and it hasn't had a negative effect on the equities market. And obviously equity markets and uh, digital asset markets, crypto markets have been tightly correlated during this period. Uh, I know that this gets complicated, but uh, it's important to point out here that there's obviously been this very long-term secular trend uh, of declining rates. If you look at the 10-year uh, treasury yield chart going back uh, some 40 years, you'll see that that's been dropping very dramatically uh, in a secular way. You're talking about these cyclical shifts uh, that we see relative to the correlation between investors pricing uh, U.S. Treasury debt uh, and, the, and, the, uh, and, the, and, and, and U.S. equities particularly. And by the way, so, so to your point, it, it's very noticeable if you look at both the Fed funds rate, so the, the very short end of the curve, 
or if you look further out, to, to your point, over the last um, really 40 years, from 1980 um, to today, you've had this trend of lower highs and lower lows, and then you hit zero, and now we're coming back off of zero. One of the reasons why is because the debt load has increased. So as you lowered interest rates, it made um, it, it more palatable, more affordable to take on more debt, and that drove the next economic cycle. Um, so you've had more and more debt come into the economy. So the question is, are we going to be able to sustain rates at a high level? How long will it take for rates at these levels to um, either crowd out other spending or um, have a, a negative effect on the economy as a result of how much debt is out in the economy and, and lead to the, the Fed having to um, cut rates again? So question of whether we're now in a secular rate increase environment or we're just uh, counting down the, the days or months until um, there, there's a negative economic impact that, that requires lowering rates again. You know, it's interesting. We're talking about cycles within cycles. Obviously, there's this long 40-year secular uh, trend, this bull market uh, in U.S. Treasuries. But then uh, to take it back, maybe one cycle further removed, when you go back to, I guess it's uh, 2008, when we finally hit the zero bound or near the zero bound on the federal funds rate. Right now, uh, we're at 450 to 475 uh, on the federal funds rate, EFFR. That's the effective federal funds rate trading at about 4.57 on my screen right now. Uh, but again, uh, much of that period between, say, 2008 uh, and I think 2016, when we saw the slight increase in rates, uh, has been at this zero bound. And now, uh, when we get substantial inflation in the U.S. economy, uh, beginning in uh, early uh, 2022, you see this uptick, uh, again, about 450 basis points on uh, on uh, federal funds rate. These are some pretty dramatic gyrations, at least by historical standards. That's that's right. So they're kind of my background is growth equities investing, and I'll, I'll throw a, a wrench in that that analysis as well, which is um, when you think about the impact of crypto, secular deflation. When you think about the impact of AI, which is top of mind for um, a lot of investors, secular deflation. Um, so when you think about the impact of onshoring chip manufacturing capacity, right? You, you think about the chip wars that are going on right now and the fact that every geography is building um, manufacturing capacity for semiconductors because they're so strategic. In the short run, it's inflationary, but in the long run, you've massively increased the global capacity for semiconductors. And the moment that free trade starts reaccelerating, um, you have overcapacity and that's deflationary or disinflationary as well. Um, so technology tends to drive these, um, these disinflationary trends. And the question is, how long do we have a period of inflation before those big secular disinflationary trends start to come through again? Yeah, and by the way, for folks out there who may have technology backgrounds who are scratching their heads about why we're talking about this, precisely to your point, uh, growth equities and digital assets, cryptocurrency, have been tightly correlated. They seem to be trading uh, in, in the same sort of philosophical framework in terms of uh, the response to the macroeconomic policy. In, in some ways, uh, this is uh, not what many folks, particularly in the Bitcoin community, have expected, this idea of uh, Bitcoin being a long-term inflation hedge. In fact, it's performed uh, in the opposite way if you look at the correlations with other asset classes. So, and, and what, what I would add to that is when you think about growth investing over the long run, 
you don't want to focus on macro. You want to focus on fundamentals. The, the reason why people love investing in growth industries is because your fundamental growth outweighs over the medium to long term anything that's happening in the macro environment. You'll have years like 22 where macro is a big headwind. Um, but through this cycle, those growth trends, the earnings growth, the revenue growth, the activity growth tends to, to outweigh that. And actually, Ash, we, um, we ran an analysis. So um, there are questions about whether crypto has been a big beneficiary of the liquidity bubble. And in fact, whether the, um, the returns that we've seen in crypto over the last few years have been purely a result of the liquidity bubble. So we ran an analysis saying, mm. okay, let's go back to the start of the liquidity bubble, which we defined as when the NASDAQ got back to its pre-COVID high. Um, and, and we said, let's look at returns for ETH, Bitcoin, a few equities in the tech space, um, the NASDAQ, we looked at Goldman's expensive software index, which was um, uh, presumably more driven by valuation than, than fundamentals. And what we saw was ETH was up about 500% point to point from the start of the liquidity bubble um, to, uh, this was in January when we ran those numbers, Bitcoin up over 100%. Apple was up 65% or so. And, and why? Because it had really strong fundamentals through that period. But then what we did was we said, okay, well, let's let's um, think about this as indicating that crypto had really strong fundamentals. What does that mean for crypto, right? Like it, it doesn't have earnings in a traditional sense. What does strong fundamentals mean? And we went through a number of different ways of looking at fundamentals for crypto. So the Electric Capital Developer Report, 297% increase in monthly active developers from the prior peak to um, today, the prior price peak to today. So again, like this is the lifeblood of the industry. This is what drives, what plants the seeds for the next bull market. Mm -hmm. I was just at ETH Denver over the last week, 100% um, increase in the people that were at the conference. It was around 12 or 13,000 last year. We're between 25 and 35,000 people there this year in the depths of the bear market. Um, we looked at global exchange volumes, material increase from the start of 20 um, to the end of 22, even though they're off significantly um, from the highs of 21. So let me um, see if I can break this yeah. down into layman's terms here. What you're talking about here is trying to segregate out uh, what's happening from a macro perspective, meaning a liquidity perspective, meaning a cyclical perspective from the core fundamental case for the technology itself, which you see as being very bullish uh, in terms of the fundamentals, uh, creating economic growth, uh, creating uh, efficiencies, reducing costs, et cetera. Is that fair to say? 100%, 100%. I mean, what, one, of the, um, one of the areas that we looked at was stable coins um, and stable coins outstanding, single digits back at the beginning of 2020, by the end of 22, you're looking at 140 billion outstanding. I mean, th these are material increases, monthly transactions in stable coins. It was something like 25 billion at the beginning of 20, 650 billion plus or minus end of 22. And that actually was not off much from the all time high, which was November when FTX happened. So th these were um, really interesting secular increases in activity 
DEX volumes, same thing, decentralized exchanges, minimal activity at the beginning of 20, uh, material activity end of 22. Um, so th these are the fundamentals of crypto, but it's very much at that stage right now where um, it, it isn't entirely clear how that value capture happens in every instance. It isn't entirely clear what the revenue models are going to be for each of these protocols, but you're seeing the activity there and that that's a great start. Okay, also not entirely clear to switch gears here a little bit. What's happening from a regulatory headwind perspective? Uh, you know, one of the hardest things to think about, I think, in investing uh, is thinking about the short term, the intermediate term, and the long term simultaneously. There's some pretty ugly, bruising stories out uh, today and over the weekend. I wanted to take a look at these and get your view on this. Uh, the top story of our day remains the turmoil over at Silvergate. U.S. crypto-friendly bank Silvergate Capital has shut down its payment network used by institutions. Reuters says that Silvergate Exchange Network, also known as the SEN, uh, was one of Silvergate's most popular products. It enabled 24 by 7 transactions between institutional investors and crypto exchanges. We should point out this is a fairly important piece uh, of functionality in a space where this type of transactability is rare. Coindesk reports that the SEND network hit a peak of more than $400 billion in transactions in the first half of 2021. And some news breaking in the last few hours, Wedbush Securities, the LA-based brokerage, has downgraded Silvergate Capital Inc., uh, SI, that's the full name of the bank. SI, of course, is the ticker. Quote, we believe a receivership slash liquidation scenario is a distinct possibility. Close quote. Again, that's according to Wedbush Securities. Wedbush said liquidation value of the company was about $5 a share. And guess what? That's pretty close to where we're trading right now. Uh, looks like $6.11 on my screen, uh, maybe a little higher. So trading around $6 per share. Wedbush saying the liquidation slash receivership uh, valuation of the company is at five bucks. Uh, Seth, first, uh, does CoinFund have any exposure to Silvergate? And second, what do you think of the potential fallout that could be to the industry given Silvergate's continued existence is in doubt or it appears to be in doubt based on some of these reports? Yeah, so we, we don't have exposure to Silvergate. Um, th this isn't good. Um, obviously, uh, the, the Silvergate network send, um, was used to, to move funds around 24-7. It was a, a part of the infrastructure mosaic that was important. Um, I think that that component has real value, the connectivity into the crypto ecosystem. So it will be interesting to see whether um, a larger bank sees an opportunity to consolidate here um, with um, a much more diversified deposit base. Um, where they're not going to be as dependent on um, what can be quick inflows and outflows associated with the the crypto economy. Well, my um, guess is that Silvergate's taking their calls right now. If if they're that's uh, right, if they're being made, that's right. I, I think the the message that we continue to hear from um, the traditional finance community writ large, and again. Plenty of uh, exceptions out there as well, but generally speaking, there's a view that crypto is here to stay. Um, it, it's going to be an important growth sector um, from a technology and innovation perspective. Um, so it, it would shock me if there wasn't um, a, a larger depository institution out there that saw this as an opportunity to very quickly bootstrap connectivity into the crypto ecosystem.
that said, uh, there could be a lot of things that we don't know yet. Um, so someone in there doing full due diligence um, could see things that that make them not want to uh, engage until it's in receivership. So uh, I don't have any um, non-public information. I, I should be clear um, on that situation. Hey, everyone, we're going to take a quick pause and hear a word from our partners. We'll be right back. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Well, I definitely don't have any non-public information, but one bit of information that is public is, quite frankly, the space right now uh, probably looks very toxic to regulated institutions based on some of the regulatory headwinds uh, that we've been talking about here on this show. Do you think that might be a factor uh, with a strategic investor or potential buyout partner? Again, uh, stipulating that neither of us have any public information. I, I think it's clearly one factor. And, and then the other factor is um, taking a view on the likelihood of those dynamics remaining in place for the medium to long term, which I would take as low, um, and whether or not there's a play to shut down parts of the bank that that are particularly um, dangerous or concerning, um, either from an operational or a um, regulatory perspective in the short run, um, but get exposure to the um, the technology and then build back out um, the bank banking functionality over time. So I, I think there are a lot of ways to get creative with the assets there. Again, um, just taking a, a very um, high-level approach without knowing what, what's potentially um, in there when someone's doing full due diligence. Okay, one crypto-native company that hopes to fill the void in the U.S. crypto exchange space uh, is, according to its uh, chief legal officer, let me just read this again. Uh, it's Chief Legal Officer. This is Kraken we're talking about here. Uh, the Chief Legal Officer of, Chat, of Kraken uh, told uh, The Block, quote, uh, they would very, they're very much on track to launch very, very soon its own bank, close quote. Uh, so the Chief Legal Officer of Kraken telling The Block that they're intent on launching their own bank, quote, very, very soon. Uh, this despite a tough regulatory landscape, which Kraken's Chief Legal Officer uh, has conceded. It also comes after Kraken's recent settlement with U.S. Securities and Exchange Commission, which saw Kraken shut down its staking as a service product and pay a $30 million fine. Uh, Seth, any thoughts on this, uh, the idea that Kraken may be jumping into the banking business on its own fairly soon, uh, according to the chief legal officer over at Kraken? Yeah, I, I don't have um, I, I don't have a lot of uh, information on this. This just hit um, a, a little while ago. What I'd say is, my my guess is if they're going for a federal charter, um, it it could be um, a difficult environment for that right now. At the same time, I think it's important that um, those dynamics are tested. Um, so they're probably not going for a federal charter, but again, if they are. Um, it, what it will do is take that dialogue out into the open. It will bring in the engagement of um, people in Congress, um, other regulatory agencies. And I, I think it will um, 
it, it will bring together a, a healthy dialogue around what's important um, at crypto exchanges in order to qualify for um, a, a federal banking charter. So I, I think from our perspective, regulatory clarity is very constructive. Um, that, that's very much the, the view that Brian Armstrong has been out over the last few days talking about as well. Um, there's a desire to engage, a desire to have a dialogue, um, and, and a desire to get more clarity. Um, and I think what we're seeing right now is some initial pushes um, by regulators that are going to be met with responses. There are going to be various um, institutions like Kraken that want to test what those um, regulatory decisions actually mean, what degrees of latitude they have. And I think all of this helps to define what regulatory environment we're working in. Um, and it helps to mobilize more resources to try to, um, to, to, try to get better clarity around um, how people can operate in crypto. So again, we believe a crypto with a well-defined regulatory regime one that's thoughtful is a much larger addressable market. Um, so we, we welcome more clarity. Hey, Seth, let me ask you this. If I understood you correctly, uh, you were saying that you don't believe that this is going to be a federal chartered bank. Uh, that, of course, being the supervisory uh, supervision of the OCC. Is the implication then that this would happen at the state level? I, again, I don't have specific information on this. But yes, if it weren't um, to be a, a federally chartered bank, um, that, then it would be at the state level. Uh, so let's also talk about news stories breaking on Tether. Uh, according to an exclusive investigation by the Wall Street Journal, Tether, the company behind the stablecoin USDT, used falsified documents to open bank accounts in the past. USDT is the largest stablecoin and the most traded cryptocurrency on the market. Here's a quote from the Wall Street Journal article, quote, in late 2018, the companies behind Tether were struggling to maintain their access to the global banking system. Some of their backers turn to shadowy intermediaries, uh, falsified documents and shell companies to get back in document show, close quote. Again, that from the journal. The journal says it accessed email and documents that showed Tether's long running and elaborate ways to stay connected to the financial system. A source speaking to the journal says Tether has been under a US Department of Justice investigation. In a statement to the Wall Street Journal, a Tether spokesperson said the journal's report was quote, wholly inaccurate and misleading, close quote, and said that Tether has, quote, a world-class compliance program, close quote, uh, that adheres to legal requirements. On Twitter, Tether's CTO, Paolo Andriano, seemed to mock the journal's reporting on this. Uh, obviously, these are some uh, pretty substantial allegations being made uh, in this article out today by the Wall Street Journal. Uh, Seth, the importance of USDT to the crypto market can't be overstated. Does the continued negative courage, coverage of the Tether story worry you? It, it does, but it, I mean, look, we've had, um, we, we've had a lot of negative headlines and concerns about Tether um, for years. Um, and the good thing is we have had um, competition come into the stablecoin space. Um, so if you look back to, to the beginning of 2020, um, where, where we were talking about stablecoin market cap um, earlier in the conversation, Tether was um, the only game in town. Now there are other um, highly regulated stablecoins that are um, viable alternatives. Um, right. 
they um, are not viable alternatives for everyone that, that's using Tether, but very much for the KYC regulated world they are. Um, so I, I'd say um, I am, um, I, I'd like to see um, this resolved in a, um, a positive way, meaning um, learning that um, Tether has uh, dialed up their compliance. Um, as we were talking about, they were very small back then. I, I would never um, condone any of the allegations um, within the, the journal. Um, but there's been a lot of time, if they um, are correct, there's been a lot of time for them to materially shore up their, their compliance. And the hope would be that um, they, they have been um, in a fully compliant um, setup for, for the period of time where they've grown materially in market cap. Hey, speaking of the Wall Street Journal, another story that I wanted to ask you about here, Seth, the Wall Street Journal says Binance and its purportedly independent partner Binance US are more intertwined than it may have appeared. The journal says it's reviewed Binance's internal documents and messages from 2018 to 2020. The journal says Binance US was created to shield the main international platform from scrutiny of US regulators. However, the journal says the two companies have shared staff, finances, and an affiliated entity that bought and sold cryptocurrencies. The journal also says, quote, Binance developers in China maintain the software code supporting Binance US users' digital wallets, potentially giving Binance access to US customer data, close quote. The journal says this could open up a way for US regulators to take action against the international exchange. The journal's investigation also believes Binance tried to recruit Gary Gensler as an advisor, the current chair of the SEC, of course, back when he was an MIT professor. A Binance spokesperson told the journal, quote, we acknowledge that we did not have adequate compliance and controls in place during those early years. We are a very different company today when it comes to compliance, close quote. A spokesman for, for Binance US said, quote, Binance US was founded specifically to serve US customers with products and services that adhere to US rules and regulations. Uh, we continue to see a lot of negative headlines on Binance. What do you make of the situation at Binance, Seth? Well, I, I think all of this comes down to having more regulatory clarity and knowing what the, um, the proper uh, rules of the road are. So um, th this is probably another example of a, a business that um, started out in a period where there was very little guidance. Um, and then as they grew and as there was more guidance around the, the proper way to um, engage, they, they put in place more material uh, compliance checks and structural uh, separations. Um, but I, I, don't have, um, I, I don't have direct information here. Other than to say, um, I, obviously, over the last few months, there have been articles talking about um, DOJ discussions with Binance investigations. Those articles have alluded to the potential for a, a settlement a number of times. Um, so I, I think there's likely to be a separation between um, when these things happened and the current state of um, finances operations, but, but that's just pure conjecture on my part. Yeah. I mean, I think one of the questions here is, uh, to what extent, uh, this, uh, conduct happened in the past and to what extent it's still ongoing. Uh, I don't know that there's a whole lot of clarity from the journal article about that point. I guess we're just going to have to wait and see. That's right. That's right. And, you know, I think 
all of these exchanges, Coinbase included, have changed the way that they operate over the years. Um, as there's been um, more clarity, albeit uh, clarity that comes uh, as a, a trickle, but um, clarity around um, what uh, the appropriate um, retail and institutional exchange setup should look like. We got a little more information around that uh, with the qualified custodian proposal from the uh, the SEC a few weeks ago. Um, so all of this uh, clarity and dialogue, um, when you get a proposal and there's a 60-day comment period, the industry will absolutely engage with that. Um, there, there were elements of that qualified custodian proposal that um, were very much workable. There were elements that um, there, there was discussion about, um, but, but having that dialogue, um, very important, particularly for an, an industry that we want to see fostered onshore um, and not see this innovation uh, go offshore. How significant do you think that risk is, Seth, uh, that some of this innovation is going to go offshore? I, I think it's quite significant. Um, I, I think it's a real risk if we don't get to the point of defining the the rules of the road um, very clearly. Um, how projects can engage with regulators. They, crypto digital assets um, are different from securities, different from equities. Um, there's a lot of information that's available on chain. Um, if you own Boeing stock. You're only getting information about their operations um, once a quarter when they um, have their earnings release and, and release their, their 10Q. Um, digital assets are quite different to the extent that there's a regulatory regime that's built around digital assets. It, it should be thoughtfully defined for the technology. Um, and, and that's a regulatory regime that the investment community and and the protocol community, I think, would very much be willing to engage with. Um, but but there has to be a dialogue. There has to be um, a, um, uh, a an attempt to clarify um, these these rules of the road, or else um, people will just uh, either for fear or for a desire to be able to build and just be heads down um, move offshore. Yeah, we're going to take a look at some viewer questions in just a moment, but we want to show our viewers a clip from the latest Rao Pals Adventures in Crypto. We released it on Friday on the Real Vision website. You can sign up for free at realvision.com forward slash crypto. Rao spoke with Alexander Dreyfus, the founder of Chili's and Socios. Here's a snippet from that conversation. I believe that fan tokens are a little bit more casual and mainstream the way we see them, while NFTs as you know them and as we design them today, or talk about them today, are a little bit more exclusive. Uh, and therefore less scalable, uh, would provide a different product. Keep in mind that a club like Barca has 137 members, which are called the socios or socio, uh, which are the real owner-ish uh, of the club, and they are the governance of the clubs, technically. And, and so the, these clubs, this association, they were educated to try to bring communities. Uh, I, I'm a strong believer in that. And for us, I, I think what limited us the last five years, and that's ironic, was the fact that we were maybe mono product uh, and a little bit like focused on just one thing. And in 2023, it's going to be completely the opposite, where because of the chain, but also because of socials, you, you could argue that socials.com as an app could become a Web3 broader 
that is dedicated to the sports space, where I have my wallet, my fan tokens, I have my NFT related to Barca and to another tips. And the gamification, which is very important, we do a massive amount of gamification in the you know, app where every day you have to log in, you have rewards, milestone, X point. Uh, you can redeem this point to get the tickets. That's actually how it works. Um, so this could, we, we could become an aggregator of thousands of different third-party ideas and, 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 and uh, initiatives that we gamify and that we bring uh, and we connect together. Again, you can sign up at realvision.com forward slash crypto to watch that video in full. Hey, everyone, we're going to take another quick break and hear a word from our partners. We'll be right back to the Real Vision Crypto Daily Briefing. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Uh, Seth, we were talking a little bit offline about some of the risks uh, to U.S. competitiveness here. What are you seeing happening offshore in terms uh, of other jurisdictions that might be uh, more friendly to digital assets? Yeah, it, it's interesting. In Europe, we've actually um, seen a, a legislative approach that has defined a, a regulatory regime, MICA. Um, and in the UK, we've had discussions around openness um, a, about fostering crypto activity. The UAE, uh, Dubai and Abu Dhabi, um, big, big push there. Um, to be a, a friendly regime, uh, the new head of the Virtual Asset Regulatory Authority in Dubai um, actually comes from Nomura's uh, crypto arm, Komenu, uh, so very knowledgeable about the space. Um, and then Hong Kong, I'd say, is one of the, the surprises where before FTX, Hong Kong came out and said um, they were looking at opening up more to, to crypto. They've obviously lost a lot of um, uh, a lot of expats and uh, jobs related to uh, financial services around COVID. Um, they're, they're looking to attract those back. There's a big uh, blockchain week in April um, in Hong Kong. And what was surprising was even after FTX, we had a reiteration of a, an opening up of Hong Kong. And the mental model that I use there is it's likely to be very similar for uh, crypto as Macau is for gaming. So kind of the, uh, the offshore jurisdiction for um, mainland China for engaging with, with crypto. And then Singapore is a jurisdiction that um, is very interested in the most innovative parts of crypto. They're, they're concerned about retail marketing, um, but, but they're very interested in having the most innovative parts of crypto. Um, come to Singapore as a, uh, a jurisdiction, a friendly regulatory jurisdiction um, to, to develop um, new, new protocols. And so there, there are actually quite a few places around the world that, that will welcome uh, teams that, that feel like the, the regulatory uncertainty of the U.S. is um, a, a little too much to bear at the moment. 
Seth, this is a great conversation. One index of that is the number of questions that we have coming in from the audience to us right now. I wanted to get to this one from Paul on the Real Vision website that speaks precisely to the point you were just making. How long do you think it will take before needed regulations are finally put in place and the crypto space can finally move forward with more trust? Great question, Paul. Well, I think we're in that process right now. Um, so first of all, the, the conversations that we're having uh, in DC right now point to 2024 as the, the likely time frame. So not seeing much coming out of uh, Congress in 23. There's still a little conversation about the potential for stablecoin legislation this year, but it does sound like most of that um, uh, legislative approach would come in uh, 24. I actually had someone who is relatively close to discussions in DC say, um, they actually felt like there was a good chance we could see legislative action before the election, um, but but still out in 24. Now, here's the caveat, though. I, I think if the, the more that we see um, a, a regulatory um, aggressive push, an overreach um, from any aspect of the, the executive branch. You're talking um, about domestically here in the United States. Domestically here in the U.S., I think the more likely it is that um, you catalyze a bigger bipartisan um, contingent in Congress to, um, to, to try to address crypto regulation. Um, the, the other caveat is when we get that next um, real breakout use moment, um, and by that I mean like DeFi summer in 2020, like NFTs in uh, late 2020, early 21, the, the next breakout, or like uh, play to earn gaming, um, but, but with more follow through, the next breakout moment um, will likely accelerate and, and catalyze more, um, more of a push in DC to, to start defining the, the regulatory environment more aggressively. Seth, that was a much more optimistic answer than I expected. So essentially what you're saying is if we see uh, more headwinds from uh, the regulatory slash executive branch, it's likely that we'd see more action from the legislative branch uh, to uh, to counterbalance those or to find a safe harbor framework uh, in legislation. That's a very optimistic take. Well, I, I mean, if you go back to two periods of time where we had very strong um, and, and quick and existential regulatory actions, one was... December of 2020, when um, the, the outgoing Trump administration um, was uh, talking about a travel rule executive order that would have uh, essentially outlawed self-custody. Um, and you had the, the crypto community catalyzed, uh, catalyzed very quickly, um, lots of engagement in DC, um, and, and that ended up um, being shelved. And then the, the infrastructure bill in the summer of 21 um, where um, the Biden administration put into the bill at the last minute language that would have made uh, miners and node operators brokers, and they would have had to collect personally identifiable information, which they can't do. And again, over a matter of days, you had uh, the industry engage aggressively, um, and, and that was walked back by the, the administration. It actually created a whole new cohort of senators and representatives in D.C., who understood the power of crypto within their uh, constituencies, so understood how many people cared about crypto in each of their districts. They understood the engagement that they got by tweeting about crypto. 
um, by um, by taking public positions about crypto. Um, so I, I think that um, there, there's very much a, a pendulum or a, a response function um, that could come into play and accelerate um, uh, activity in DC um, if, if it were to to come to that. And again, this is all part of the, having this dialogue is constructive. Um, it's much better than having no regulatory dialogue. Um, and, and the hope is that this is a real dialogue, um, a good faith dialogue, a thoughtful dialogue. Um, and from that dialogue will come a, a regulatory framework that allows crypto uh, to succeed and excel um, and that innovation to remain onshore very much the same way that um, Web2 thrived in, in the U.S. Seth, we've got a bunch of questions coming at us right now. What do you say? You want to do a quick speed round so we can get through a bunch of these? <laughs> Let's do it. All right. So this one comes to us from Ralph on the Real Vision website. What three areas of technology within the crypto ecosystem uh, is Seth most bullish on? So I think ETH has an immense number of catalysts this year. Um, okay. But let's just let's just say scaling solutions for, for ETH, zero knowledge proofs broadly. Obviously, that's one subset of scaling solutions. But right. ZK technology is going to be incredibly powerful. Um, and then I'd say um, data unions. So really mm. taking all of that to the next level and um, uh, allowing people to contribute their data in a privacy protected way and monetize their data. Interesting. Okay, next speed round question uh, comes to us from Mr. Wright on YouTube. What does Seth think of the potential of ISO coins? Will they be as transformative as everyone believes? Uh, for those who don't know, ISO coins are coins that support the exchange of metadata within this framework of uh, certain regulated financial institutions. Any thoughts on ISO coins? I, I don't have um, I, I don't have strong views on ISO coins, but back to um, back to the, um, the the data union answer. Um, I, I think they're going to be a lot of um, interesting value generative um, protocols that, that traffic in data, whether that data is your purchase data, whether it's your automotive data, whether it's your, uh, your KYC data, your medical data. Um, but again, all in a completely privacy preserved way. Um, and I think that ends up creating um, a, a lot of new areas of composability and engagement across crypto protocols. Okay, next speed round question. John on the Real Vision website, any thoughts on Signature Bank appears to be of the same cloth as Silvergate? Interesting question. Yeah, I, I, don't, have, um, I, I don't have added views on uh, Signature. Again, I think the, the Dynamic with these banks is the degree to which they had concentration in crypto businesses. I'm fairly certain that that Signature um, was a more diversified or is a more diversified uh, book of business. Um, but but again, um, not nothing particular to to add there. Okay, here's a bigger picture question that comes to us from YouTube from Mr. Wright. Is the future of banking actually a smart contract on a blockchain? I, I think the future of a lot of aspects of banking um, will be a, a smart contract. Um, the we're, we're still a long way from there, but what we're doing is we're building a lot of the infrastructure to, to get there. We're battle testing it um, in the open source world. And then I think it, one area that we're very excited about that we didn't talk about for this year is the start of 
um, more significant real world business development. So I think as we get that regulatory um, definition, we're going to see not just financial institutions, but a lot of different businesses um, thinking about how they can engage with crypto. And in the end, a lot of this is going to be um, uh, abstracted away. So you're not going to, to necessarily know that you're engaging with crypto. You're just going to be able to engage 24-7 um, with the next generation banking system. Seth, great conversation. Uh, final thoughts, key takeaways that you'd like to leave our audience with. You, you know, I'd say the, the key takeaways from our perspective are um, if you think about 2023 as being analogous to 2019, the year after the, the big drawdown from the last cycle, um, what is not analogous or what's very different is the fact that there are a ton of fundamental drivers coming to fruition this year. Whereas in 2019, there was a lot of interesting technology that was going to mature over the next few years, um, but it wasn't happening right in that year. And I think when you see the number of people at ETH Denver double um, from last year, when last year was coming off of a big price year in 21, and this year is arguably in the depths of the bear market, that really highlights the, um, the, the fact that um, developer activity is continuing apace, and it's going to lead to some really um, interesting uh, and remarkable developments over the next year, two years, five years, in our view. And that's planting the seeds for, for the next bull market. Yeah, that really is an interesting statistic. Uh, and again, speaks to some of the fundamental case that you've been making here today. I said, thanks again for coming on the show. Pleasure having you with us. Ash, thanks so much for having me. That's it for today. Asset Manager Aaron Woolman will join us live tomorrow. Make sure to check realvision.com as well. Lots happening over there. Starting today, we have an important two-part series called How to Un-F Your Future. It features some of the most visionary thinkers and investors we know. This week, we'll be exploring all the ways in which we're effed, featuring Ralph Powell, Dario Perkins, Frederick Niebrand, Peter Zihan, and Alex Gurevich. In week two, we thankfully move on to the solutions. Rao Pal will kick it all off today. See you at 9 a.m. Pacific, noon Eastern, 5 p.m. London time, live on Real Vision Crypto Daily Briefing. Have a great afternoon, everybody. If we want to change the outcomes for this really screwed up world, where our wages don't go up, where we're being replaced by technology, where governments are massively in debt and we foot the bill via taxes, where we see debasement of assets so we can't afford as many assets as we like. So the rich get richer, the poor get poorer. If we don't like to see the rise of populism based on this broken society because the promises of the future have been broken, let's make our promises to our future selves come right. And that's by unfucking your future. Some of this is going to really f your future in 20 or 30 years time, but we've got time to figure that out because it's unstoppable. <laughs> <laughs>